what we're going to look at this morning is another way to hopefully grow uh, the richness and deepen our prayer life with the Lord. When we spend a lot of time alone with the Lord, it's really helpful to have different ways and different things that we can communicate to the Lord. And something we talked about last time was how all three persons of the Godhead were involved in salvation of the sinner. How the Holy Spirit works in conjunction with the Son, who works in conjunction with the Father to save a sinner. And today what we're going to do is we're going to look at how all three members of the Godhead were involved in raising Jesus from the dead after he died on the cross. And so what we're going to look at is how all three members of that triune Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, were actually involved in Jesus' resurrection from the dead. So in John chapter 10, Jesus is is teaching, and he's teaching about how he's the good shepherd. John 10 is the good shepherd chapter, and he's talking about what makes him a good shepherd, and he lays down his life for the sheep. And so when you get down to about uh, verse 17, Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, I lay it down so that I can take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. So the charge to lay down his life and the charge to take up his life is a charge that Jesus has from the father in heaven. And so Jesus is primarily explaining that because of his unity with the father, his oneness with the father, He carries out the Father's will for his own body, and that will for Jesus' body is that Jesus would raise his own body from the dead. So Jesus played a very active role in his own resurrection. But the Father played a role in his resurrection. I'm going to read a couple of verses from Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1 is where Paul is explaining how it is that believers come to faith in Christ. God chooses them and God saves them. Ephesians chapter 1, Paul has three things that he's praying for for the church in Ephesus. And the third one is starting in verse 19, that they would know what the immeasurable greatness of God's power is towards believers, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ, that the Father worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So God is one who's at work here. God the Father is at work raising Jesus from the dead and seating him in the heavenly places. So the Father is every bit as much at work in the resurrection of Jesus as the Son was. It says right here, Father raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. So we know that's the Father because Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. So that's how the Father's at work. And we see that the Holy Spirit also played a role in this. If you want to jump over to Romans chapter 8, you'll see that. Um, Romans 8 is is a really important chapter. We're going to learn all about the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 8 when we get there on Sunday mornings. We'll get there in some time from now. But uh, here we have Romans 8. We're going to look at verse 11. And uh, Paul is teaching the church in Rome. He says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So the new life that comes to the believer comes to the believer through the spirit. And so um, the power that actually resurrects someone, that raises someone from the dead, is from the Spirit. And so, why is this important to us? Why is it so important that uh, the Spirit and the Father and the Son are are working together in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead? Well, we see it right here at the end of verse 11. Um, The Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead at the beginning of the chapter, that's the same one who raises you from the dead when you're raised to eternal life. One day we're all going to expire. We're going to die here on this earth unless the Lord comes first. 
and we're going to die. And the same one that raised Jesus from the dead will raise us from the dead to eternal life. And so that's important. That's really, really important. So it's just as certain for us that just as certain that as Jesus was raised from the dead through the Holy Spirit, that same Holy Spirit is going to raise us from the dead after we die. The New Testament tells us about the experience that we'll have when we're raised from the dead. I'll just take you to John 14, and we can read about that experience. Jesus is teaching the believers. He's going to be on the cross in just a matter of hours. And he's teaching them, and he says, Do not let your hearts be troubled, in John 14, 1. He said, Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be with me. So the Spirit is going to raise the, the dead believer to life, entering into the next age. And where they will go is to be with Christ in a place that Christ has prepared for them. So if you're looking at ways and considering ways and looking for ways to communicate with the Holy Spirit in your prayer life, think about that. Think about the fact that the Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. And that same power is going to raise you from the dead. And one day, as you're sitting there praying, thinking forward about your Christian life and your future with Christ, it's the Spirit who enables you. And so apart from his work to resurrect you from the dead, uh, the experience that we would have with Christ in a place that Christ had prepared for us is not possible. So hopefully that gives us something good to communicate with the Holy Spirit with in our prayer life. Uh, the Holy Spirit is every bit as member, every bit as much a member of the Triune Godhead as the other two members. We just think about the other two members a little more often. But this is a, a helpful way, I hope, to think about how you can communicate with the Spirit that dwells in you when you're praying to your Father in Heaven. All right. Okay, we're going to be talking today about principles we can use from Scripture that do um, provide us with guidelines for how we can make decisions. And there's something really surprising here that we're going to find, and it has to do with God's unrevealed will and what God's heart for us is in relation to his will that is not revealed. So in order to get our minds around that, let's pray and ask God to help us. And then we'll spend a little time looking at God's word and God's design for biblical decision-making. Let's pray. Father, again, I thank you for these men. I thank you that what is in them is your Holy Spirit. I thank you that your Holy Spirit is sufficient. Your Holy Spirit is necessary for each one of us to engage with your word. Lord, as we look at your word today and we think about decisions that we need to make and the way we need to live our lives, I pray that you would use your word to communicate to us. I pray that the truth of your word would carry the day for us, that we would be informed, we would be guided, we would be helped, we would be encouraged, we would be corrected by your word. Again, Lord, I'm very thankful for fellowship in the body, that, that friends can get together and can communicate together like this. And I pray, Lord, that you would use all of this to grow each one of us in our love for you and our faithfulness to you. Lord, I pray that all of that would result in a church here that's a stronger church because of our, our meeting together around your word. So, Lord, I'm thankful. I'm thankful for what you've done for us. Lord, I'm, I'm thankful that you are pleased to, to use your word to, to help us. I pray that you would come and help us today in this hour, and I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, Ephesians chapter 5. Um, we've got decisions we need to make all over the place. And what we're going to be doing today is we're going to be looking at a category of God's will that is very revealed, and we're going to be looking at a category of God's will 
that is not particularly revealed. It's more unrevealed. We're going to start by reading Ephesians 5, 15 to 17, and it's going to set the, the frame for us. Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus. Paul was a pastor with them for between two and a half and three years. These people know Paul well. These people are well grounded in the word. These people have a good theology underneath them. And uh, when you read Ephesians, you can get the sense for that. Paul is talking at a very technical level, very high level with them. Um, And so he knows he's talking about people who are well-informed biblically. So he says to them, he spends three chapters talking to them about what God did to save them, what God's role is in their salvation. He spends the other three chapters talking about how you live in response to that. So starting in verse 15, Verse five, uh, chapter 5, he says, Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days, of e- <clears throat> the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So the instruction there is, do not be foolish. On the contrary, we are to understand what the will of the Lord is. So we've got this idea of the Lord's will. It's an instruction that we need to know what that will is. And so we step back and we say, okay, I need to know what the will of the Lord is. And our most natural instinct is, what is the will of the Lord as it relates to where I work, where I send my kids to college, where I go to college, what I do with my kids, how I discipline my kids, and all of these things. Lots of those are very important and very good things. What we're going to find out today is that God has a very specific knowledge for us to understand about him in regards to his will. And he has some areas of his will that are not particularly revealed, they're unrevealed. And we need to use principles from God's word and how to live in those times and in those decisions where God's will is not clear from Scripture for us. Okay. And so we we look around us and we say, well, we live in a a very sinful world. We live in a world that's becoming increasingly sinful. And we can see it all around us. You just have to look back 10 years and then look back 10 weeks and you can see that the world is becoming increasingly sinful. And so we're looking to how to respond in the midst of all of this. And the very natural response to say is, I need to make all these decisions about these things that are coming to me. And so I need to go to God's word to find out his will for me in this decision. Um, So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at some material that has been very helpfully provided to us by a friend of Scott Maxwell's. His name is Joel James. And Joel is a pastor of a church in South Africa. And uh, he's been there a long time. He's got a fruitful ministry. And one thing that Joel does is he produces a, a library of materials resources for Christians in South Africa. And he shared some of that with us on a bunch of different areas. And one of the things that he shared with us is his resources on, on decision-making and, and the will of God. So what we're going to do is, is draw from that in some places today. And I share that just to let you know that this is um, some of this is from Joel. He's a good guy. I've met him. And uh, he loves God and has a fruitful ministry. We're going to look first at God's will in Scripture. If you want to understand God's will, you look at Scripture. Um, And God's will in Scripture comes in two forms. It is a a will that is prescribed, and it is a will that is decreed. Uh, The prescribed is what comes in commandment form. Do not steal, do not commit adultery, do not murder. That's prescribed. It's very prescriptive. But God also has a decreed will. God has decreed that certain things will take place. He knows those things. And, and we don't know those things. So the prescribed will of God is something that's been revealed. This is my will for you. I want you to behave in this way. The decreed will of God, as it relates to things that are, are coming and things that are to come, is unrevealed, but it doesn't mean it's not part of God's will. 
So what we're going to do is we're going to look at God's revealed will, and then we're going to look at God's unrevealed will. And we're going to move through lots of different places in the New Testament and a few places in the Old Testament as well. We're going to start with God's revealed will, and we're going to look at three different aspects of his revealed will. And the first is that when you read an instruction or a command in Scripture, that helps us understand, that reveals God's will. And so we're going to look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. The rest of scriptures detail what the Lord's will is and what we must do in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Jesus is very clear in his ministry that what a person must do to enter into the kingdom of heaven is repent and believe. So as it relates to salvation, God is very clear with his commandment. God's will is that we would repent and we would believe. It's very clearly stated. There's, there's nothing difficult to understand about that. It's right there for us. Another verse we can look at to understand an example of God's commanded, revealed will is 1 Thessalonians 5.18. This is one of Tom Engstead's favorite verses. In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. It's right there. God's will for the believer, it's a commandment. God's commanded will is that we would give thanks in all things. Okay? A third example of how God's commands reveal his will is one chapter before that in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3. This is the will of God, your sanctification. So God's will is that believers live sanctified lives. They live increasingly sanctified lives. In particular, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So God is very clear with us in his command. This is my will for your life. One way we can know what God's revealed will in our, for our life is, is we read the New Testament, we read the Old Testament, and we look for the commands in those places. That's how you find God's will for your life. Okay? So again, these are very specific commands that we can obey. Another way we understand God's revealed will is his broad intentions for believers. God has broad intentions for believers. And if you read Romans chapter 12, you begin to see that. The first 11 chapters of Romans is the most comprehensive summary in Scripture of how God saves. And then the last five chapters in Romans are how you live your life in response to what the saving work of God is in your life. And Paul says in verse 2, he's two verses into how we live the Christian life. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is. <clears throat> so what he says here is something that's more broad. It's not a specific command that he's giving you about give thanks in all things. This is more broad. And the broadness is seen when he says, don't be conformed to this world. That's very large in its scope. That's not very refined and focused. It's very large in its scope. So it's a broad intention. So that's the second of the ways in which we know God's revealed will, is that God speaks broadly. Do not be conformed to the image of this world or the pattern of this world. And the third way that we know uh, what God's revealed is revealed will is that God has a plan for human history. And it relates to the salvation of those that God has chosen to himself. So we're going to use um, a passage at the beginning of Galatians and a passage at the beginning of Ephesians to see that. We're going to look at Galatians chapter 1. Paul says, Grace and peace to you from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of God our Father. 
God's plan for human history, God's redemptive plan for human history, is that he would rescue sinners into a relationship with himself according to God's will. So God has a desire, God has a will to bring about the salvation of those that he has chosen for himself. Mm -hmm. Ephesians 1 says the same thing. And we can see it very clearly here. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in Christ. And here's the detail on it. With a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of time, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. God has a plan for human history, and that plan is that all of his believers will be gathered together under the headship of Jesus Christ in eternity. That is God's redemptive plan. So when we want to understand God's will in terms of his revealed will to us, we look at specific commands from Scripture where God says, you shall do this, you will do this, this is my design for you. We look at broad intentions that we don't conform to the pattern of this world, but we be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And we look at God's redemptive plan for human history, that God has a will to save those that he's chosen for himself before the foundations of the world. So those three areas are areas that can kind of summarize God's revealed will. And God is clear. When he wants us to do something, he's very clear. He puts it in his word. He preserves his word so that we can read it. We can understand exactly what it is that he has for us. That's God's revealed will. But God also has an unrevealed will. And the unrevealed will relates to the things that we don't know anything about, but God does know about, and God wants to keep it that way. God has decided in his wisdom and in his majesty that there are a whole host of things that relate to us and the human experience that God has a will for and a desire for, but that he hasn't related to us. And we know this. We, we know this instinctively in the way that we live. And Proverbs chapter 16, jump back to the Old Testament, will help us see that. We're going to look at chapter 16, verse 9. And every one of us knows this instinctively, but it's harder for us to come to this uh, at a biblical level sometimes. Proverbs 16, 9 says, The mind of the man plans his way. Every one of us can identify with that. We make plans. But the Lord directs his steps. So we have these plans. But the Lord is the one who directs our steps. We make these plans, and it is right, and it is good to make these plans. We make these plans for the future. We make these plans of the things that we're going to do. We make plans that relate to the use of money, the use of time, the use of resources, the use of people, people that work for us. We make those plans, and it is right, and it is good to make those plans. However, the end of the verse says, the Lord directs our steps. What that tells us is that what actually happens, what actually comes to pass, is what the Lord has already determined. And that is either independent, that is always going to be independent of what our plans are. It is right and good for us to make those plans, but we need to submit them to the Lord. And so what we want to want to ask ourselves is a question here. And the question is this. Does the Bible ever teach us? Does it ever tell us? Does it ever instruct us on how we can know what God's unrevealed will is and what we should do to, to pursue that? And the answer, surprisingly, is no. The Bible doesn't teach us, Scripture does not teach us, that we need to be on a pursuit to understand God's unrevealed will. We need to let that sink in. Believers in Jesus Christ are never directed by God through his word to search out and find God's unrevealed will before they make a decision. Think about that. Um, should I send my kid to go to college at the University of Kansas or the University of Nebraska? 
You're not going to find the answer to that in Scripture. That might be God's unrevealed will. He certainly has a plan for that. But we're not going to find the answer to that in the canon of Scripture. We're going to find principles that we can apply to it that help us use, that can help us use, that help us make a decision, but we aren't going to find God's will in that regard. So we'll find a couple examples of that. Now, one is that Paul is writing to the church in Rome. And in chapter 15, Paul has already gone through the full gospel presentation. He's done most of his talking about how they're, they're going to live. And Paul desperately wants to visit the church in Rome. He desperately wants to visit them. Uh, he loves these people. He has affections for them. And so he writes to them, and he's explaining to them um, that they, he wants them to be praying for him. He wants to be praying for them. He says in verse 31, Pray that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints, so that, verse 32, I may come to you in joy. He wants to come to them in joy, but he also wants to come to them not only in joy, but by the will of God and find refreshment in their company. Paul knows that it would be good for him to be with the church in Rome. He knows that it is right for people to enjoy fellowship together. He knows it is right to encourage and to instruct and to teach. He doesn't know whether or not he's ever going to make it to Rome. He knows he's going to serve the Lord. He knows he's going to suffer for the Lord. He knows he has suffered for the Lord for a long time. But he doesn't know whether or not he's actually going to get there. He's made plans to get there. He has a desire to get there. He's communicating to them that he wants to be there. But he doesn't know if he's actually going to be there. And so he doesn't write to them saying, I'm definitely coming to you. And it's the Lord's will that I'm coming to you. He says to them, if it's the Lord's will, I'll make my plans. I'll try to execute my plans, but I will submit them to the Lord. Same thing happens when Paul is dealing with the church in Ephesus. Again, this is a church that he knew very, very well. He pastored for two or three years. He knows them well. He sees them on his second missionary journey, and he sees them on his third missionary journey. In chapter 18 of Acts, Paul is returning back to Antioch at the end of his second missionary journey. And he's meeting with the leadership of the church there in Ephesus. And he says to them, and he's writing, Luke is writing, and Luke writes, when they, which is the church in Ephesus, asked him to stay for a while longer, he did not consent. But taking leave of them and saying, I will return to you again if it, God's will, if it is God's will. And he set sail from Ephesus. So he says, I will return if it is God's will. He qualifies it with, with God's will. He never spoke in this, this chapter, in this setting, of how important it was that he find God's will and whether or not he can return. He just says, if it is God's will, I'll return. What that underscores for us is this is the unrevealed will of God that is not to be found. It's not to be investigated. It's not to be pursued. Paul is going to live the life that God has for him. He knows he's going back to... To Jerusalem to bring a gift for, for the churches there. He knows he's going to suffer um, eventually, uh, but he doesn't know if he's going to make it back. It turns out that he did make it back. He saw them on his third missionary journey, and then when he was returning at the end of his third missionary journey, he knew that it was very unlikely he'd ever see them again. So that relates to Paul and his, his ministry. What we're going to look at now is a, a passage in James. In James chapter 4, uh, James is writing, and he's helping them understand how it is that we need to think about our lives. 
And this is a great passage uh, because this illustrates the rightness and the goodness of having plans and at the same time submitting those plans to the Lord. James writes, Come now, you who say, Tomorrow, today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. There's everything right, there's everything good about making plans. What is at question here is the issue of just believing that your plans are going to come to fruition simply because you made those plans. And they're good plans, they're wise plans, they're right plans, but believing that they come to fruition. Look at what James says here. He says, if the Lord lives, if the Lord wills, we'll even be alive. We're alive only by God's will. So when we get to tomorrow, not to mention what we're doing tomorrow, but if we can barely even get to tomorrow, we'll only get there by God's will. And so James is really wise about that, and he gives us that. Um, he's really very helpful. What we're going to do now is we're going to look back to Deuteronomy chapter 29, and we're going to see something here that is very helpful in, in making the distinction between the revealed and the unrevealed will for God. So Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. That's what the word means. We're at chapter 29 here. We're at the end of chapter 29. There's just a few more chapters to go. So Moses has delivered most of the Old Testament law to Israel again. He's given them just about everything already. So they've heard it. So they know the commanded will of God. They understand what they're supposed to do for their festivals. They understand what they're supposed to do for their dietary restraints. They understand what they're supposed to do for, for their traveling restrictions and their, their, what they wear and what they, they can put on their bodies, how they have to fashion their beards and all of this. They understand all of that. There's 613 instructions, 613 instructions that are either commandments or prohibitions. They've got this. They've already got all of it. And then he says, Moses is writing, he says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed, that's his commands, belong to us and to our sons forever. So we've got two things here. We've got things that are secret that have not been revealed. And look at where those things belong. The ownership, the belonging of that is with the Lord. And you've got things here that are known, that are revealed. And Moses says, that is ours. That's what we have. That's what we possess. And that's not just ours for now. It's ours in perpetuity. It's ours forever. And so what, what God wants us to see in this is that what is ours and what is to be stewarded, what is to be run after, what is to be, to be we use all of our energy for is the things that God has revealed to us. <coughs> The, the Israelites, the Jews, were to focus on what God had revealed to them. They weren't to sit there and, and desperately wonder about what was coming next. What was it going to look like in the, the promised land? You'll find out what it looks like in the promised land when you get there. I'm telling you, you'll get there, and that's what you're supposed to do. So we need to take that, that approach as well. So if you want to make a decision the right way and want to go about making a decision the right way, one of the big things we need to consider is, is this something that has been revealed by God? Or is this something that has not been revealed by God? If it is something that has been revealed by God, pick up your Bible, find that revelation, understand it, obey it, and run after that as hard as you can. If it is something that is not revealed in Scripture, we need to look at principles that underlie what we're going to be using to make a good decision in that area where God has not revealed clearly what we need to do. And we'll get to those in just a few minutes. The first thing we're going to do is take a brief journey through man-centered attempts to understand the will of God as it relates to things that are not revealed in Scripture. 
Okay, so we're going to look at things that are not revealed in Scripture. You can't find a verse that says buy the blue car or the red car. Um, so how do you go about making a decision of buying the blue car or the red car? Well, we're going to look at, at six principles that the world uses and tests that the world uses, and we're going to understand why it is that we should not put our trust in these. And the sobering thing about this is that as I was preparing this, I do each and every one of these myself. I do every single one of these to one degree or another in my own life. And the first is a very pragmatic approach. And the, instant, the issue here is you just list out pragmatically all the pros and all the cons to an issue. Should I take this one job or should I keep my current job? Should I pursue another job? Should, I, should my wife and I agree together that she goes back to the workforce? What is it that I'm doing? Well, let's weigh out the pros and let's weigh out the cons. I'm here to tell you this morning there's everything right and there's everything good to weigh out the pros and cons. The first approach that we're mentioning here, though, is the purely pragmatic approach. It's an approach that only looks at the pros and the cons. It's an approach that doesn't consider the most important thing that should be considered, and that's God's word. And what does God's word say about this? So the person who's making the pragmatic um, approach, his approach, um, is primarily characterized by looking at the pros and cons and weighing out the good and the bad and making his decision on that basis alone. And the sobering thing about this is that Christians do this all the time. I know I've done this. I've done this this year, and I, I regret it, um, because God's word is, is a resource, a wealth of resource available to us. Um, sometimes the believer says, yeah, I have my Bible, and my Bible is important to me. But it's surprising how often we can make decisions without consulting God's word. It may be about buying the red card Am I not? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I just wanted to add a little comment. Um, I, the, the saddest part is when churches are run by pragmatism. And that seems to be the case very often today. Yeah. So praise, praise God for elders who submit to God's word instead of conforming to oh, the man. world's way of doing things. Were it not for God's grace, so would I be right there. Amen. Yeah. As all of us. Um, sobering. It, it's tempting as a, as a church to make your decisions very pragmatically. Uh, we have this space 50 yards from where we're sitting right here um, that is available. And so it's very tempting to just look at the, the pragmatic approach. What's the square footage? What's the cost? What are the terms? What's the relationship like with the guy who's selling with the seller? It's very tempting to just look at the pragmatics. But we have to think rightly about, I'm glad you brought this up. You have to think rightly about, okay, what are we really trying to do here as a church? What's the underlying principle here? And how does this actually feed into what we know our gospel ministry to be? I'm glad you mentioned that. And there's a plug. If you have a chance to come to visit with us tomorrow after the service, we'd love to hear from you, your thoughts. Um, if you think the space is a good thing we need to pursue, we, we'd love to hear from you. We have more information. Um, we want to do some communicating to the body about what we understand. Uh, we know that we don't have 360 perspective on this. So if you have thoughts and inputs, we would love to hear from you. The last time we did this was very helpful as well. Um, and we've had some conversations with people since then that have also been very helpful. People have brought up questions that we don't know about. Thank you, Robert. Um, so one of, the, one of the defenses about this point is that, that is put in front of someone who comes when after a decision has been made on this basis is the person says in defense, well, I did all the research, I looked at all the influencing factors, I weighed them out, I, I put the good things in the good column, I put the bad things in the negative column, and one outweighed the other, and that's why I made my decision. So how can you argue with that? And um, 
What this method is, is this is a method of trying to discern God's <coughs> unrevealed will without consulting scripture. It's just using the facts. And that, that's not a good thing because um, what it allows the person to do is to, to evade somebody's caution, somebody's concern, somebody's counsel over a decision that's been made apart from God's word. And the response typically being said is, well, I, I looked at all the facts. And what's being, what's being overlooked is God's word. So that's the first one. The second one is being referred to as the lucky dip approach. And we've, we've all seen this. And this may not be the one that, that we do all the time, but it's certainly worth mentioning. And that is by just swooping down and grabbing a passage, blab it and grab it from Scripture and calling it your own. So the example here is Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Uh, you're wondering whether you should move from Phoenix to the northwest or you should move from Phoenix to Chicago. And so uh, what you do is you go and you read Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, and God tells Abram, uh, you know, go forth from your land. Oh, I need to go forth from my land. It's right there in Scripture. See, God's will for me is that I go forth from my land. And so, you know, the defense is you're looking right at it, and um, it's right there for me. God did that then. God never changes, so that must be true for me today. But uh, what we need to be thinking about very, very carefully is what we find in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Present yourself to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. So what we need to ask ourselves is, would the God who demands accuracy in our handling of the word, when we sit down with the word and we open it up and we look at it, God <laughs> demands that we, we do everything we can to understand it accurately. Would he be impressed, would he approve of the way we make this decision by doing the, the swoop in and blab it and grab it, just grab whatever verse fits your fancy. Uh, what verse was that again? That verse is Second Timothy chapter two, verse fifteen. We need to correctly handle the word of truth, and um, so we need to be very careful about this because what this does also is this allows a person to evade any counsel or any criticism as well. Because look, I'm using scripture, and you can't deny scripture. Scripture is infallible, so. Uh, we need to be very, very aware of that. Then there's the prophecy approach. And there's, 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 two, there's two forms of this. And the first is the extreme form that we don't see very often. And the second form is, is something that's more common and more popular today. The extreme form is you have somebody that you believe, you know, someone in your life that you believe has close access to the Lord. They have intimate access with the Lord. They have the inside track on, on data from the Lord. And you need to believe them whenever they say something. And that's especially true in large Christian ministries. You need to be very, very careful about that. But what's more common is this. The Lord spoke to me. The Lord told me. I was reading in the Word and the Lord told me. As if there's some kind of direct communication individually between yourself and the Lord. Or the Lord led me to this. The Lord told me. The Lord revealed to me that this is what is right. I want to look at what God tells us, what our disposition should be towards somebody who, who says that. Deuteronomy 18, 18. Moses is explaining part of Israel's relationship towards prophets. Prophets were sprouting up all over the place. And the Lord says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So the true prophet... God's spokesperson in the Old Testament was someone that God raised up and God put his words in this man's mouth. 
And this man spoke those words. And you can see that faithfully and truthfully that was taking place in Old Testament Israel. Those prophets who were the true prophets, they were persevering even when they had very difficult circumstances. But look at what God says about the prophet who's not 100% accurate. We're going to advance a couple of verses, verses 21 and 22. If you say in your heart, how will we know what the word of the Lord is that the Lord has not yet spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that this is the word that the Lord has not spoken, the prophet has spoken it presumptuously, you need not be afraid of him. That means you need to have no reverence for him, have no regard for him, have no respect for him. The prophet was a man who was supposed to be listened to, observed, his words were supposed to sober you. For the guy who says things that don't come to be true, God says you need not be afraid of him because this man is a fraud, this man is a liar, he's not to be feared, he's not to be regarded. And what we have today is people who claim to be a prophet, people who claim to be on the inside track with, with knowledge from God, actually do something else at the same time. They claim to be something other than 100% accurate. They claim to be less than 100% accurate. When I was in college, shortly after I was in college, I knew somebody who was making a claim that he had heard from the Lord that the world was coming to an end. It was coming to an end sometime in the early 90s. And he was about 80% confident that that's what it would be. We're still here. Must have been the other 20%. But here's what God says through Jeremiah and what you're to do um, to the person who speaks that way. Jeremiah 23, 16. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. Jeremiah 23, 16. Do not listen to them. God actually says, don't listen to them, who, to the one who claims to have heard from God, but actually hasn't. All right. So the thing about this that's, that's such a great defense is, um, if you argue with me, if you question my decision that I made on this basis, you're actually <coughs> arguing with God, because God is the one who informed me on this. So my, t my decision is bulletproof. I'm untouchable on this, because God told me. And so the individual looks very spiritual. They look like they've got the inside track with the Lord and that you don't. But there's one word to describe this decision-making process, and that is that it's unbiblical. It's totally unbiblical. The fourth approach is the peaceful approach. We've, we've heard this a lot. I've said this. I've got a lot of peace about this decision. I've got a whole lot of peace about this decision. And what this method assumes is that God is revealing his will through peace that he brings to the person's life. All right? I have a lot of peace about this decision, so therefore it must be God's will. Well, there's a huge problem with that. Inner peace has no bearing on the will of God, whether a decision is a good one or a bad one. And you want proof of that? Just look to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. This was really, really hard for Jesus. Jesus, as a man, knew that what was coming upon him was all of the sin of everyone who would ever believe in him as a Savior would be transferred onto him and that he would suffer God's wrath, that we can't even comprehend how big it is, in place of us, every one of us, multiplied by each one of us. That was something that Jesus had no peace over. Here's what Luke 22 says, Luke 22:14, And see if when we read this, you get the idea that Jesus is trying to find peace with this decision. 
And being in agony, Jesus prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. There's no peace here in Jesus' decision-making process. He's not considering peace at all. He knew it was the right thing to do, and he went ahead. He proceeded regardless of his lack of peace. The problem here with this view and this approach of making decisions is that it's man-centered. It's all based on man's perception of the world and what he deems to be right because of what he deems to be peaceful. And of course, the defense here is how can the giving of peace be doubted by anybody? Peace is a good thing. Peace is the fruit of the Spirit, right? So why would peace not be a good basis for making a decision about God's unrevealed will? Well, again, it's a, it's a person who's using their own interpretations, their own experience, and they're importing that into God's sovereign will of what he will do. And again, it, it's a very convenient, very effective way to evade counsel or criticism regarding your decision. Now, there's one area regarding a decision where peace is very important, and that's after the decision is made. After you've made a decision, it's really good to make that decision and trust that the Lord is in that, assuming it's a godly decision. So peace after the decision is a really good thing. Then we've also heard about the open and the closed door approach. God opened all the doors for me to get this new job, so it must be his will. God has opened every door for this. The doors are just falling down, so it must be his will. What you're actually saying is, if the circumstances make it easy for me to do something, then that decision must be the right thing because it's easy to do. After all, we, we, we love to make ease our, our controlling influence here. But the question we need to ask ourselves is, where is that taught in Scripture? That's interpreting circumstances through open doors, and it's very, very arbitrary because we don't really know how to interpret rightly whether a door is open or closed. And they're only open or closed from our perspective, not from God's. Think about if you're a missionary and you're, you're heading back to Papua New Guinea, or you're on your way to Papua New Guinea and you haven't quite left yet, and you're saying to yourself, we're having a lot of trouble raising support to go take the gospel to this tribal group of people. So we're having a lot of trouble. Our support is actually pretty low, so it must not be the Lord's will that we go. Because uh, there's no open door here. It uh, seems like we're running into brick wall after brick wall, so uh, that must not be the Lord's will. Think about the Apostle Paul. Think about in his missionary journeys. Think about whether or not there were doors that were opened in our understanding of the, the phrase doors being opened in his ministry where he was beaten and he was persecuted. Um, he was put in stocks and beaten in Philippi. There were riots in Thessalonica. Those riots followed him to Berea on his second missionary journey. He was mocked in Athens. He had to deal with the church in Corinth that was not friendly to him when he got there. There were no open doors in Paul's ministry on his second missionary journey, and yet fruit came out of this. Many, many churches were established. Hey, Scott, can you address the difference between like, the open and closed door of missionaries going to Papua New Guinea and, and not having support, and then missionaries expecting to go back to Papua New Guinea and the missionary passes away? I mean, I guess the, 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 the close, there's a closed door there, right? For Matt and Cameron. Right? And, and that's, that's more of like in line with the James passage. Yeah. The will of the Lord was, was revealed yeah. there. That Matt would not be back in Papua New Guinea. 
Um, and, and there's a big difference between ease of ease of going, and then what God says, "Hey, I'm, this is not my will." Though mm-hmm. so, though you may have thought it to be. I, I guess I'm just saying there there are times when the door closes, and, and God forces it closed, right? And but it's not a it's not a, a decision of of ease. It's a, it's a decision right. pretty Yeah, and so just for the, the sake of the recording, the, the issue was um, how, do we, how do we distinguish the difference between um, when God is demonstrating what his will is by effectively closing a door um, versus what we consider to be open doors today, open and closed doors today. And th- the answer there really is a lot of what Josh said. The Lord was revealing his will for, for the Cameron and Matt Dodd as um, the Lord took Matt to be with him. We saw that the Lord's will was that Matt would live 36 years and that Matt would go to be with the Lord. And that was God's revealed will um, in time. As God, Sorry, not as revealed. That was God's will as he decreed the number of years that Matt would live. He knew before the foundations of the world how many years Matt would live. And the plans that we made were, were contravened by what the Lord was going to do. And so um, it wasn't a closed door in the sense of an opportunity there um, has been taken away or an opportunity is there. It was, it was the people themselves where the situation has changed. And so the Lord was looking at that. I think what we're looking at here in this one is doors in terms of as, as we look at opportunities themselves. Matt would certainly say that door was closed and a different door was open for him. That's a really good distinction. Thanks for making that. When Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery in Egypt, um, there was an easy door there. They wanted to get rid of their brother. They wanted to kill him. They thought, oh, here comes a a Midianite caravan. Let's just sell him to them, and we'll be done with this. That was a very easy, very convenient, very open door for them. But does Scripture ever tell us that the the decision was a godly decision, that it was a wise decision, that it was a good decision? No, it, it never says that. It was a sinful decision. But at the end of Genesis, Joseph tells his brothers, you intended that for evil. You definitely intended that for evil. God intended it for good. The point there is that there was an open door, and that open door was an open door into a sinful decision. So open doors don't always reflect a a good decision or represent a good decision or choice. Eve's decision could have been an open door interpreted as as such. Could have been. Yeah. Yeah. Adam and Eve, there's the open door. Take your fruit. But again, um, it's a very convenient and easy way to evade criticism or counsel against your decision because you say the door was wide open. The money's there or the opportunity is there or whatever. And what it's doing, again, is it's not using Scripture as your first and foremost controlling line of authority. And the last one is, is looking for a sign. It may be similar in some ways to an open door, but um, what this is doing is it's looking for actual events or circumstances that take place. And then the belief here is that God will <coughs> we'll get Allie to back up on this a few seconds. Uh, the belief here is that God will secretly and clearly communicate through an event what that decision should be made. He's going to use an event to communicate his will. And the question is, where is that taught in Scripture? We have people all throughout history today who can say, oh, well, clearly this event was there, and that is the event that I'm, I'm using as my sign that I should go ahead with something. And look at what Jesus says 
in Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 and 39. Some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Jesus answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. No sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. The real weakness with this basis of making decisions is that it's man-centered. It's man interpreting an event as a sign from the Lord. What was that passage in Matthew? That was Matthew chapter 12, 38 and 39. And again, this makes a person very immune to criticism or counsel against their decision because they can say, how can you dispute my interpretation of this sign? This is my interpretation of it. It's just a very convenient way to evade counsel and criticism of your decision. So the conclusion here is that none of these methods are actually taught in Scripture. The sobering fact is that we need to be very, very careful that that in some of these, at least, we we have a tendency within ourselves to think that way in in some degree or other. Um, Every single one of these methods is unbiblical. Every single one of these methods is centered in man being the decision maker. Every one of these methods looks away from Scripture and the principles we find in Scripture in terms of how to make a decision. So what do we do when we need to make a decision? The first thing we need to do is we need to uh, remove decision-making from God's will. Separate decision-making from God's will when it's not clearly commanded, when it's not clearly explained, clearly revealed in Scripture. So what we're going to do here is look at decision-making in a way that is informed with Scripture. And again, what we're talking about here is decisions that relate to God's unrevealed will. God's revealed will, you find it in Scripture, get all over it, and pray for God's grace to to help you obey that. Okay, we've got some principles here. One, in God's strength, be obedient to God's revealed will first. His commands and his broad intentions. Uh, Before you start worrying, before you start messing with God's unrevealed will, you've got some decision. First thing you need to ask yourself is, is this something that is taught? Is this something that is commanded? Is this something that is prohibited in Scripture? That should be your first question every time, is go to God's Word and what God has told you and work from there. All right, so in God's strength, ask God for wisdom. Be obedient to His revealed will for your life. Just focus on that for a while and see how things go and see if the the issue doesn't even resolve itself. Secondly, it's really important to pray for wisdom, wisdom that is outside of you. There is such benefit in counsel. Commit your works to the Lord, and your plans will be established. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Decisions begin with prayer. We must ask for God's wisdom right from the start. As you prayerfully commit your works to the Lord, he will establish your plans. So seek wisdom in prayer. Pray about your decision. How many times have you made a decision that you've, you've gone to, and you regret it because you didn't stop and pray about it? It's really, really important to do. Mick? Uh, in that verse, um, Proverbs 16.3, what does that mean that he will establish our plans? Oh, I think the idea there is that when your plan, when the, the plans come to pass, that is what the Lord has decreed. It's pretty much just what it is that you're doing is what the Lord will do. He is going to do that. When you commit your way to him, you will be in a path that he has ordained for your life. Mm. 
So the idea here is pray for wisdom as you're doing this. Don't look at yourself as the one who's able to make this decision on your own, that you have all the facilities available. Seek wisdom, and the actual process of praying through something gives you the wisdom that you need to, to make a good decision. As you pray, principles from Scripture come to mind. As you pray, um, experiences from the past come to mind. As you pray, God's character comes to mind. Uh, as you pray, other people and their, their ability to help you comes to mind. And that brings up the third point. Gather information and counsel. Counsel from outside of you. Proverbs 14:15. The naive believes everything, but a sensible man considers some steps. Dan. What would you do? I mean, how do you guide people or counsel people when they're almost paralyzed? They've gone through the steps, they've prayed, they just feel like either decision's good, but now they can't really make one because they're just there's that fear of the wrong decision. Yeah. Um, so the question is, what do you do when somebody has really made a good analysis, they've investigated, they've prayed, they've been pretty biblical about it, and it still looks like they, they can't decide one or the other. Uh, you're working with an area of freedom, probably. The Lord has shown you that you're dealing with an area of freedom. If you, if you can't find compelling reason against one or for the other, you're in an area of freedom. You probably need to just make one of the decision for one or the other and go forward and trust the Lord. And there again, it, it gets back to God's character. God's character to work in the circumstances of your life, whether you choose option A or you choose option B. So the, the biggest thing to do for a person in that situation is what you really believe about God's character. Is God's character sufficient to sustain you? Is God's character sufficient to work in all the events in your life, even if you do make a bad decision? And you can take him to scripture and say, there are lots of bad decisions that were made, and God used every single one of them. You can take him to one of the sons of Jacob in the Old Testament who had a child with a harlot that was in the line of Jesus. Or any other thing, you can say God is bigger than your ability to make the right decision. You can trust him in that. And you've evaluated and you've seen that they're both A-OK. -okay. Um, you need to be thinking about God's character. Okay, so uh, gather wisdom and counsel from those around you. Proverbs fourteen fifteen. Look at what the sensible man does and look at what the naive man does. The naive man believes everything. And what he believes there is that he's got a handle on it. He believes everything. He believes that he understands everything. He believes that he has a comprehensive view of the world. So you don't need to touch me because I've got this. You don't need to help me understand this. I don't need help from other people. I've got this. And uh, I just have to tell you with full disclosure that that's the way I was thinking before I had children. I don't need help with parenting. I've got this. Then we had a child. And I said, I need help. I don't have this. <laughs> Total white flag. Mick. Um, a really important point that I've experienced on three is uh, a fault of mine that I observed um, in making a few decisions, getting a lot of counsel from a lot of people. Uh, our human nature can tend to take the counsel of the one that, that helps us. And so you could think that, oh, I'm getting a lot of counsel and I'm going to take the counsel that I got. Mm -hmm. um, but we can gravitate towards taking the counsel from someone that we think sounds the best. Right. Um, and so that's, that's something I've experienced in my life when I have been seeking lots of counsel, but I said yes to this one and no to all these other ones. Right. So the word there is, is about really about the number of counselors. And that brings up probably the last point I want to make here, and that is that you need to be very, very sure 
but you're, you need to be wise about the, the amount of counsel that you seek. Um, and there's wisdom in seeking good counsel, but there's wisdom in seeking counselor from counsel from counselors that you know to be the right kind of people. And when you have counsel and you're getting counsel from the right kind of people, men who are godly, men who are holy men, men who are faithful to the word, you don't need to hear a ton of counsel on that. You need to hear one or two, three or four. They're all going to corroborate each other if they're all godly men. Uh, when, you're, when you're hearing from a thousand people, the possibilities that you're going to be hearing from a thousand righteous people, it drops off. So in a sense, you can play the numbers there. Select the few godly guys you want to work with and listen to their counsel and weigh it out well. Okay, good point. When you're making a decision, ask yourself in question number four, does the Bible speak directly to my decision, scripture outside of me? Sometimes it's really important to, to look at the decision of whether you buy the red car or the blue car and investigate whether there are underlying principles that affect the decision underneath it. Scripture doesn't have a verse that talks about a red car or a blue car. But if you live in a culture that really values and esteems red cars, and you want to be just like everybody else, and you want to be approved by everybody else, and you want to be esteemed by everybody else because you own a red car, then the decision about making a red car needs to be informed from Scripture. You need to be thinking, well, what's the real heart issue here? And again, it's discipline one. Am I counseling my heart from Scripture? Am I, am I informing myself of God's character so that I know the underlying principles when I'm working with a decision that seems to be um, not declared in Scripture? So what we want to do that is think very, very carefully for that. Okay? So look for principles outside of the issue that stand underneath it and support it and speak into it. You know, you've got a job opportunity. And it looks like a good opportunity. Examine your heart. Why am I pursuing this job opportunity? Why am I doing this? All right. Uh, fifthly, how does this, how does Scripture speak indirectly into my decision? Scripture outside of you. It's somewhat the same, um, except here we want to look at the issue of, of whether or not this is something that's, that's um, described exactly. You want to be able to look at this and say, does Scripture relate to, does scripture speak to me in areas that support this? Um, it's indirect in this sense, whereas the previous one is, is direct. Does scripture actually point to me and tell me things that I need to know about myself and things that I know, need to know about the issue that aren't directly related to the issue but feed into the issue? Okay? Um, and lastly, I want to look at one other principle here. Um, if you've done all of this and you're looking at this and you're, you're saying, well, I uh, just like was mentioned a few minutes ago, I've done this, I've, I've examined everything, and I'm at the point I need to make a decision, and perhaps it's not rock solid what I should do. Make a decision humbly and, and allow the Lord to lead you in that decision. Make the decision and allow the Lord to, to, to lead your life and the consequences and the, 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 what comes after that in the decision. The issue there, the most important thing, is that we're a humble man when we make the decision. We don't go forth saying, this is exactly what it is, and I'm going to do this, and, and I'm not changing from this. We need to make the decision and, and leave the results in the Lord's hands. And if the Lord honors your plans and, and causes what to come to pass, exactly what will come to pass, then that's what we need to do. Um, if the Lord works contrary to our decision, we need to do that as well. All right. So... The, probably the best verse I want to leave with is Proverbs chapter 3, 
verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he's the one who makes straight your paths. The Lord has a straight path and we, we don't know what the, the path is. Um, we know what it's going to be when we, when we acknowledge him and all of that. Okay, let's pray.